Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. They were the last generation to grow up speaking French as their first language. It is therefore imperative that we capture and document their stories for posterity. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of Acadian identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchy to bridge the language gap. This is part two of a series where we chronicle the story of the Cajuns of the Louisiana National Guard, the 2nd Battalion of the 156th Infantry Regiment of the famed 31st Dixie Division, consisted of several companies of guardsmen from the Bayou Country. Nearly all of them grew up speaking French as their first language. After more than two years of extensive training in various camps around the country, where they had to fight for their rights to speak their native French, the unit was shipped overseas and stationed in England. During the planning for the Allied invasion of North Africa, codenamed Operation Torch, the American military did something unusual. The orders were to send this Cajun Guard unit to North Africa, not as an infantry unit, but as an escort guard battalion. These Cajun GIs never did experience the fierce frontline fighting overseas as they were trained to do. Wallace Thibodeau of Company G once told me, quote, in the five years I was in the guard, I never fired a shot in anger. For the Cajuns of the 2nd Battalion, the war was seen from behind the lines. But why, might you ask? Well, according to Shelby Stanton's World War II Order of Battle, the 2nd Battalion of the 156th Infantry Regiment was transferred to North Africa for military police duties, quote, due to its French linguistic abilities. The countries in North Africa were predominantly French-speaking territories, and the French military, which had fled from France before the Nazi invasion, had a commanding presence in the port cities of Casablanca, Oran, and Algiers. The Cajuns spent much of 1943 in North Africa protecting the vulnerable ports and depots. They guarded the trucks and trains that moved the much-needed supplies to the front lines. These soldiers also handled the dirty laundry of the military, guarding prisoners, arresting drunks, thieves, AWOLs, and those unsavory soldiers who took to the back streets. They investigated and targeted black marketeers. Furthermore, they helped to keep the peace between the GIs and the locals. Their native French language gave them a distinct advantage when it came to security and military law enforcement. Numerous wartime letters, some actually written in French, testified to the personal experiences of French-speaking Cajun soldiers who came to realize, perhaps for the first time, the value of their native language and heritage. As the North African campaign unfolded and later led to the invasion of Italy and southern France, the advantage of having access to a pool of bilingual soldiers became widely known among military commanders. It was in French North Africa where these Cajun Frenchies first became highly sought after, and the military found many of them among the rank and file of the Louisiana National Guard. 
The following excerpts were taken from interviews with some of these veterans who described their experiences overseas. Most of these interviews were conducted 20 years ago with a micro cassette recorder. First up is Robert Jeramy from Company E out of Generette, Louisiana. He was a cook for the battalion. As a first-generation Italian-American who grew up in Cajun country, Jeramy spoke three languages. We went to Texas for more training. Uh, camp, uh, I forget the name of the place. Uh, can't think right. But then I went, went to Texas. And then we, we trained and they trained them again there. And then we left from there and we went to England. So you were probably in New York for the Port of Embarkation? Yeah, yeah, we went to the yeah, Port of Embarkation. And then you, you went across? Went across to England. Did you go across with your entire division or with a small group? Uh, it was uh, all, all uh, E, F, G, and H company. To your whole battalion. F was Brobridge, G was Nyberry, H was Morgan Spitter. And the band. Came a band? Yeah, band. we had a band and I'll talk So it was the hundred hundred and infantry with the thirty first infantry division. G was in New Iberia. Yeah. And E was generous. Okay. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, okay. that's real good. And F is Brobridge. F was Brobridge. And H is home of Morgan Spitter somewhere down there. Okay. And they had the band with us. So we had a good band. And the band, band was, the band was all, all, all they do is play music. And the band was all the, members were from each one of these uh, areas. No, from from New Orleans. The band. The band was from New Orleans, and they were signed to your uh, division. Was it division? Uh, our our uh, not division. It's our uh, battalion. See, it take four to make a battalion. Right, four companies. Four companies. Make a battalion Now, when we went into North Africa, that's when we were guarding prisoners of war in North Africa, in the prison camp. Okay. Uh, not me, but our man, you know, who guard Yeah. And they had Italian prisoners in there and also uh, German prisoners in that camp. Well, North Africa was pretty good. We had a they built a tent, a big uh, uh, mess hall for us, you know. Mm -hmm. We cooked in there and all. And, and we had uh, two prisoners with that Gigi, his name was, and that uh, was uh, Romy, Rom, Romel, something like that. And he was. Uh, they, were, they was helping clean up and stuff. They were German or Italian prisoners? Italian. They were nice, though. And you were talking with them? Yeah. And I went to their house, uh, by the way. Uh, no, they said. They give me the address of the house. I'm glad you told me that. And uh, we went uh, with Lieutenant Schaas and our company. We went visit the parents. No kid. Once yeah. we got to Italy. And they give us some spaghetti and they treat us nice. Went about twice there. And they, and they were still prisoners in Africa? Yeah, when, they were you... still prisoners when we left. He gave me a letter to show to show his mom. I thought if you go there, you see, he didn't know. What town was he from? What, what town? Oh, Lord, I can't remember. Yeah, somewhere that. in Italy? Somewhere, near somewhere in Italy, yeah. A little town, little Italy? Yeah, not far from where we were. Okay. So we went there and we told them who we was. And so they said, come back the next Sunday and they gave us a big dinner and everything. So we went back. So, so what were your duties in Oran for those few months that you were there? In Oran? Cook. You were cooking yeah, for, your, for just your men? Yeah, we cook. I was cooking. 
what what type of food were you cooking? And well, they had had them eggs, you know, uh, potted eggs, and they had this big cans of stuff, you know, and all. It was mostly ration, huh? Yeah, ration. Hard sack biscuits. No, we never had that. No. What? No. No fresh bread. <coughs> no. Uh, no bread. Now, we didn't know what a Coke was. I didn't drink a Coke for three years till I came back here. So let's say you think you stayed in Oran for six months? About, yeah. Homer Kumo went overseas as an original member of the New Iberia National Guard, Company G. But I think you were good. Do you remember landing in North Africa? Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about Oran. Well, they just chose uh, to get ready to get on. And, uh, you don't have any problems uh, on the way on the way there? No, no, no big problem. We got a few bombs that fell on us. Yeah. Not. Uh, I can't remember none falling on the night we landed. I can't remember. But they put us. They put us on uh, Gordon Oran prison. That's when our first. First duty was to guard the prison. Anybody, American soldiers, or we didn't have many of them, but, but German, French, or whatever, that we got them. And right after my platoon, or could be, could be maybe two or three platoon, they put us guarding the port, the port itself, the port of Moran, where, where the stuff would come in. Right. And the only thing we have to watch is them son of a gun open those cases, a port and throw it away. I don't think don't eat pork. And they'd open the can. I don't know how they tell pork. They uh, put it on the side try to open another one. But when I catch them, I have that man that, you open that can, you eat it. Yeah. I'd make them eat it until they throw up, man. And that's the truth. I'd make them throw up. You never... I, I kind of stick them a little bit. The blood come out of their bed. They ain't gonna go all the way through. You gonna eat it? You, you waste it? Yeah. Eat it. Somebody starving up in the hills. Right. I would love to have that can right. of pork. And then uh, we had problems with uh, people stealing truckloads and stuff. Yeah. So that's why they had to. I guess I'm very but I always say that's why they put the tough guys on them guards at the port, at the door gates, you know. Yeah. Lafayette native Wilfred Rocca joined Company H and left for overseas with the 2nd Battalion. They were stationed in England for several months, guarding airports and preparing for whatever the military had in store for them. And then came the invasion of North Africa, which we uh, followed. We, didn't, we were not with the initial, but we were removed from the 156th Infantry, the 2nd Battalion, and we became the 202nd Infantry Battalion. And then we were spread out throughout Africa. And when Tunisia fell, in that area, we started processing the German prisoner of war. And we were in Silabilabes, which was the French Foreign Legion headquarters. And we had as many as 20,000 German prisoner of war continuously. Uh, processing them, and they were sending them to the States to do some labor. And from then on, they pulled duty up up to the front, up all over the place. And uh, 
Once we had a train wreck, a group from Bro Bridge, uh, several of them got killed in that deal. And from then on, after maybe 18 months, we got ready to go to Angio. We were on the docks loading up. When they changed their mind, there was a, a group of Japanese Americans out of California that had formed a battalion and were American soldiers. They replaced us at an NGO, and I've been thankful to them ever since because they killed most of them. Yeah. So we, for, for that period of time, we waited maybe two or three weeks. Then we got on the ship and went to Corsica. And we stayed on Corsica maybe six months. They were, it was really a supply area, and, and uh, I thought the island would sink. We had so much stuff on it. And then when they went into southern France in August, where well, we followed suit and went on to, um, when, we, when, we, when we got down, we started moving right away and went to Grenoble, went to Lyon, then Epinal, and then went to uh, Luneville, Nancy, Strasbourg, and, and all these areas. Then I, I, I was transferred out of, to a combat military outfit. And then we, we were in combat with, with the whole troops. Actually, I didn't realize that the military police was that important because I always disliked them. But they actually run where you're going. I mean, they don't, they're the ones that really know where everybody's at. Nobody else knows. A soldier has no way of knowing because all he does is walk and, and fight and whatever there is to do. And from then on, I was a platoon sergeant, and I was with a group that had been in combat from day one till that particular time. And I was a platoon sergeant for this organization, and it was the roughest bunch I had ever seen. Warren Bear from Company E was a part of this unique unit as well and spent some time on the side boxing while he was stationed in North Africa. We landed in Oran. They made us combat MPs. They took the 156th Infantry away from us, made us 69th MPs. Combat MPs, okay. We, what we did, we took care of the prisoners. When the prisoners, that, was, that wasn't bad. As long as we combat, I enjoyed that. We start taking care of processing all of the, the prisoners. He took a liking for me because I, I boxed and that's where he, he, used, he used to train a, a French boxer. And uh, he knew Marcel Seldon. I remember if you knew. He was Did a, Marcel Seldon. He was a French boxer, the champion of the world, you know, he was champion of the world. Anyway, he had, uh, he had another good friend, uh, battling hard. I worked out with him. He was a North African champ. But by dentist, he was a dentist by trade, but he fought professional. And uh, he was good. And this guy, I showed you this boxer in there. Yeah, he yeah, fought yeah. him. He fought him in Africa, and he lost. Uh, much, uh, battling hard, 
knocked him out in the seventh round. Well, I bet you that was a big event, huh? Oh, yeah. I, I met some good boys in, when I was there. No. Go ahead. Maybe you knew the man from New Iberia? Uh, Chink, Bruthard? Well, I fought with Chink. Yes, me, Chink, Ellis. Ellis is from New Iberia. Chink's still living, I believe. Yep. Well, <coughs> not well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we got him. We got his story. I'll be there. He's been the same book with you. He's a good boxer fighter. He's a professional fighter. Mm -hmm. You know. R.J. Chink Broussard joined Company G in 1940. He started boxing at a very young age and spent more than half of his time fighting and training fighters in the army as part of the special services branch. In fact, he won the middleweight championship of the 4th Army while stationed in London. From there, he went over to North Africa with the rest of the Cajun Guard. Well, I fought with Marcel Serdana. We used to fight uh, twice a week. Well, they're just three rounds. You know what I mean? But the, we used to fight on the amateur court at the service center. And they had the pro, uh, a pro card, Marcel said that, and the guy showed you out there. Mm -hmm. Hell, I got it on this card. Where in North Africa would you fight? Algiers? Uh, and or Oran. Oran? Oran, Right. Oran. Marcel was a buddy of yours? Huh? He was a buddy of yours? Oh, oh I could speak French. So, oh. Marcel Derwan, uh, <laughs> Marcel said that. Oh yeah, we used to talk in the dressing room all all the time. He was a nice guy. He was in the navy, the French navy. That's all he did was box too. So you won the middleweight in London. Yes, and I won the heavyweight championship in 1948 when I reenlisted. Of course, that was not the war. You see, when we got to France, uh, I was on TTY. TDY, they call it. I was uh, in another unit training fighters, and I was putting on boxing matches for the guys that get off the uh, front lines. Mm -hmm. Boy, they love to box too, because we used to, I got pictures of them, show you them. It was loaded. So, but boxing was popular then, not that way. Before I got transferred, you know, that was, I got transferred in. Dijon, France. Before I got transferred, I was still with the uh, 156th Infantry Company G. Well, we had uh, we went to Anzio, and then we went to Rome. They were military police. They changed us from infantry to military police. So I got to be a military police. So were you were you with New Iberia guys the whole time, pretty much? Well, uh, yeah, before I got transferred. But you see, when I got transferred to the special service, they call it. Well, uh, I wasn't considered. Uh, I get paid. I get paid with the, the company I was with. You know what I mean? But the boys was close by. We was. In other words, a certain time I used to go eat with them and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, oh yeah. Percy Johnson, who went into North Africa with the Brobridge Company, had a cousin who worked in the American Mediterranean base headquarters there. Johnson went to visit him one day. 
His cousin informed him that headquarters was in need of French-speaking soldiers to help with communications. Johnson told me in a 2004 interview, My cousin made one phone call, and within 10 minutes, I was transferred to MBS headquarters. His job was to use his French to pick up supplies and communicate with the French locals. French came in real handy for these fellows. Lyndon Martin, who was originally assigned to battalion headquarters company, wound up in North Africa, then later in southern France, as a military police like the rest of the bunch. All our training was infantry. Uh, all the time we stayed in until North Africa was interesting. And uh, they just told us one day you had peace. There was no training or nothing. Mm. Well, now, as you know, Mr. Leonard, it takes a pretty tough soldier to become an MP. Yeah, we... Uh, you know, when, when, when we went into, into North Africa, like I told you, they, most of the people either spoke French or they were Arabs, you know, they spoke Arabic. And, you know, we got along with them well, because we could speak French. It is evident from the many letters sent home from the young men stationed in this faraway land that the Cajuns had indeed landed in a place uniquely similar to their own. Writing from Oran in early 1943, Percy Hebert said, I am in a French-speaking country, and we are very friendly with the people here. Brobridge native Alphonse Angel noted that he got along fine with the French girls. There must be a lot of boys from home who are in North Africa now, he wrote, and I hope that I can meet up with some of them soon. Boy, if there are any Cajuns when we meet, won't we chew the rag? His brother, Andrew Pym Angel, wrote back home, Let me tell you that I am prouder of my French now than I have ever been, and do I use it. When I go to town, I have lots of fun. I ask the French people questions in English, and they do all kinds of signs trying to get me to understand. Then before leaving them, I start rattling off my old Cajun stuff, and they just stand there, gaping as if to say, well, it's impossible that I can talk French so well. Of course, when I see a nice-looking squall, naturally, I don't talk English to her but get on the good side, you know? It did not take the U.S. military long to recognize the benefits of utilizing these French-speaking Cajuns in areas of communications. Leroy Mobert of Cecilia eventually transferred out of Company F to work as a translator. He wrote several letters home in 1943, specifically referencing his joy in having the ability to speak to the locals in North Africa. He felt right at home among the French-speaking people he commented that many people there speak French and that it is a pleasure to go to church and hear French sermons. Sidney LeBlanc, a Cajun from Vermilion Parish, learned while in North Africa that his native French had a distinct dialect. I learned that we in Abbeville speak very good French, he said. Our group had to train some French soldiers, and as the officer in charge knew I spoke French, I was picked to help. When I was introduced to the French officer, I spoke to him in his native tongue, and later was surprised to see he and another officer with their heads together gesturing towards me. Finally, he came over and asked me where I had learned to speak the language. He said for an American, I had an unusual accent. I told him we all spoke French at home, and he then told me that the French I spoke was the 17th century French that had been forgotten in France. 
Whitney LeBlanc's experience in a French-speaking foreign land made an impression on him, so much so that he felt compelled to write a letter home in French. Translated to English, a lot of us are in these countries or in occupation where the French is required. Personally, I have many occasions to put my French to use, he wrote. After nearly a year in North Africa, the Army divided the unit into two sections of combat military police. Robert Jaramie was in the group that went to Italy shortly after the Allied invasion. We was an MP company. We left uh, North Africa as an MP company. We, we split up the company. 150 men went this way and the other went this way. We split up, you see, uh -huh. and we went into, uh, into Italy. And that's when we, uh, I, I was uh, Italian, so I went into the police department and sent me to interpret, you know, be interpreter. Were you able to do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could speak Italian? Well, of course. Italian, Italian and French Italian. and English? Huh? Could you speak French? A little, yeah. Yeah, I was raised with the French people. My wife's a friend. You were a valuable cook, man. Oh, man. Yeah, oh yeah. He took me out of the kitchen and put me uh, to go uh, in, in with them, you know. Homer Como also went to Italy as an MP and worked security under Gerald Watney. Watney was a former Company E sergeant and native Iberian who was in charge of the military police section of Rome. He actually became the provost marshal of Rome with many of the Cajun MPs serving as his deputies. The job was to keep security, guard areas, and hunt down and arrest Italian and German officers hiding out in motels and buildings. So sad we followed uh, the into Rome. And when the immigrant got into the border of Rome, they could not go in. They had made an agreement they would save Rome. So we had to divide, we had to go on each side of Rome. Mm -hmm and the military would go in, we'd go in. Right. And to tell you the truth, I was the first jeep, first jeep that got into the room as a military police. Really? Yeah. It was too terrible. No matter what you did the day before, or the night before, they'd take you and say, let's go. So you'd get up and meet it. Most of the time, I'd be with the, the higher official in there. Go knock on a hotel door. Yeah. You could hear him. When you knock on the door, you couldn't hear him no more. So we'd ask him to open the door. They wouldn't open it, you know. So we'd die hand grenade on that thing. We'd run around the corner. And we'd get out. I remember one time that we got to win them the room. Four or five German, four or five of them. That big German pictures of that. I take my fish, my, my M1. <laughs> I do that to the Oh, yeah. Couldn't kill that. And I, I make them understand they was next. Oh, so uh, there, were, there were German officers and German soldiers? The German up navy. Yes, so it wasn't. It was a uh, navy that was or get that go. It was in, in the motel, you know. And uh, you get, it was all in the uproar. And you get some clerks up there with your bayonet up there, and you make them understand. In, uh, uh, Italian language almost spent almost as a same word. A lot of them were same word. And I did that. I, I what, would you, what would you tell them in French? I tell them, 
کمی بوش روم بگیرین اکر شون Wilfred Rockaw commented on the well-trained unit that he was a part of, but which saw little combat overseas. It was considered a highly efficient group of people. They were supposed to be a very fine group of, of you know, infantrymen, and that's what we were in. In the five companies? Well, there was five companies we had for it, yeah, yeah. But they were, that, that bunch was there. The, uh, the, and they were good soldiers, there was two, two ways about it. And of course, we were, most of us spoke French in those days, but they, they pulled a lot of duty now, they did a lot. And a lot of those guys, a lot of them were transferred out, a lot of them requested transferred out. The amazing thing, we were about 118 had left Lafayette, and out of that, maybe half or three-quarters saw combat. Not one was killed. Really? Not one. Some of them had got shot up to a back. You know, they had holes in their bodies, and yeah. some of them prisoner of war. And, and it was amazing that not one got killed. Chick Broussard, who was one of the toughest GIs of them all, never saw combat and was never close to the enemy lines. Yet, like the rest, he did a valuable service by entertaining the troops and boosting morale. Well, I'll tell you what, I had a good time. You see, I, I was... You were special. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I was doing something that I didn't realize it was so important to the yeah. troops. You know, we they come off the front line and they want to drink because they had to go back and all that kind of stuff. And I had a buddy of mine, you from California, his name was Larry Cisneros. I got a picture of him over there. And he used to come meet me all the time when, when he come back off the front lines. And we had a place for him, swimming pool for him. Yeah. And we had the clothes, uh, you know, clean clothes and everything else. And let it go there. Basketball courts, but the boxing used to bring the most. Chink Broussard became a well-known amateur boxer and trainer in the Army during the 1940s. This newspaper column, read by one of his beloved students, Ronald Freeman, speaks to the impressive boxing run that Broussard had during and after the war. Fourth Army's heavyweight champion, T. Sergeant Relius J. Broussard, started boxing in high school in New Iberia, Louisiana, and since then has fought from the United States to Africa, Europe, and back 
winning the Stars and Stripes Championship in London in 1942 and the African Command title in Iran in 1943. A clever boxer with a fast right hand, Bruce Orr is a strong contender for the Ormian Air Force Heavyweight Championship. Leonard Martin, who ended up in an MP unit in France, talked about the use of Cajuns as interpreters. Because uh, you see, when, it, when, when in France we were, we were doing uh, different duties, interpreters, and uh, we handled traffic and all that kind of stuff. We handled prisoners. And we did a variety of things. And any time that they needed somebody to interpret, they'd call on from somebody from the, from the unit. Retired Brigadier General Kearney Dronet, a native of Erath, served in the Army Air Corps during World War II. After the war, he joined the Louisiana National Guard and eventually rose to the rank of commander of the 256th Infantry Brigade in the 1970s. Dronet had a unique perspective on how the war impacted the Cajuns and the Cajun culture. Oh, I think that certainly it continued the transformation of Cajuns the enhancement of the Cajun culture. Because formerly, before the, in the 30s or before the 30s, uh, Cajuns were not thought highly of, neither by our neighbors, our English neighbors, and by the, the entire United States. They always referred to the Cajuns as being uh, marsh-dwelling trappers, uh, ignorant farmers, very family-oriented, always, always family-oriented. The Cajuns were at that time. All, normally Catholic, all of this area was Catholic. Yes. With few exceptions. We didn't begin to get a, an, an influx of uh, Protestantism uh, except following World War II. And yes, I, be, I certainly believe that uh, the Cajun culture began to grow, began to really grow, and the pride of becoming a Cajun really began to grow with World War II and following World War II. These veterans, whose voices you hear in this episode and in others, are no longer with us. There are, in fact, only a handful of these French-speaking Cajun World War II veterans still living. I spent the last few years tracking the last of them down and documenting their stories for posterity. On April 27, 2022, we will be honoring these veterans at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. This historic event, in partnership with the Canadian Consulate General's Office, will commemorate the French-speaking Cajun and Acadian World War II veterans and their contributions to the Allied effort in liberating Europe. For more information, visit the National World War II Museum's website and jasonterrio.com. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. We'd like to thank our supporters, the Acadian Museum in Erath, the Regional Military Museum in Homa, the Atchafalaya National Heritage Area, and CODAFIL, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. 
Music provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio editing done by Chris Segura of the Center for Louisiana Studies at UL in Lafayette.